Would you take seats, please? Thank you. Continuing on in the series uh, that we started a little uh, two weeks ago, I think I thought Tyler did an excellent job in introdu introducing it, and then I thought um, uh, last week uh, Leif was just uh, was a great great message from Leif and apostolic alignment for us, which was really helpful. But I want to talk about the yeast of the kingdom uh, today and uh, looking at some of those things. The, the big question is uh, on, on our minds is how does the kingdom come? You see, Jesus showed up uh, on the scene of his, the beginning message, the, the preparation message that John the Baptist had preached is repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus then took over from John bearing a similar message and saying repent because the kingdom has come. And so the question is, uh, you never see anywhere in the scriptures where any of the Jews said to Jesus, what are you talking about? Which, which implies that they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. The kingdom has come. They go, great, very cool. So the question I want to ask is, how does the kingdom come? In the, in the Middle Ages, the concept of the salvation sort of centered on being lifted out of this world into a beautiful other place. Salvation was most often thought about as an escape from the pressures of this mortal life into uh, an achievement in a, in a beautiful place in heaven. So the violence, the immorality, the poverty, the hunger, the disease and the, of the day meant that escaping this corrupt world uh, was a very, very attractive option. And so it became a strong kind of focus in, in the church of, of like, hey, salvation means we're out of here. The eject button. Where is the eject button? Get me out of here. You know, as David said, oh, I, that I had the wings of a dove, I would fly away and find peace. Like, because this is not the space to be in. But the Hebrew view of God, typically, uh, of God's salvation, was not centered in deliverance from the circumstances. It was that the God who loved them would step with them into the circumstances. They didn't expect to escape life but that God's presence and power would transform their lives and their community. This, after all, was the history of Israel, God showing up in supernatural, spectacular ways and delivering the people so that they could pass through. They could come uh, out of Egypt. They could pass through the Red Sea. They could destroy their enemies. They could walk across a flooded river. They could shout, and the city walls would come down. The entire nation of Israel, the entire history was steeped for thousands of years in the supernatural magnificence of God showing up on behalf of his people. So when you spoke to the Jews about salvation and the kingdom coming, they didn't go, oh, oh, is it time? Take me, Lord, you know. They were like, great, where are we invading? Does that make sense? So they, uh, to a Hebrew mind, they boldly affirmed their God-given humanity. Their identity was found in their society, not in isolation. Isn't this fascinating? Because it impacts the way we view things in the church. If you're waiting to, to charge, then your identity can be found in the escape route. But if you understand, if you change your mindset and adapt it to the way the, views, the, the Jews viewed the kingdom, you suddenly go, well, I need to get involved in community. I need to engage here because God's going to show up among us. So earth to the Jews was not an alien place. It was on earth alone that they could bring glory to God. So they expected to experience the salvation of God when they embraced him with their whole hearts. Now, one of the first portions of scriptures that young Jewish boys learned, 
that the committed to memory was from Deuteronomy, which in Deuteronomy was the most widely circulated book in the days that Jesus was around. And the, the verse came out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was called the Shema. This was a prayer that they were called on to pray twice a day. And according to the Babylonian Talmud, Jewish boys were taught this biblical passage as soon as they could speak by their fathers. So the moment they started speaking, they go, I got something to teach you, son. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema literally means to hear, and it's based on the verbal imperative that starts the beginning of, of that verse, Hear, O Israel. It's not a prayer, but it's more a, a creed or a confession of life. And there's, there's a lot of proof that it was widespread during Jesus. When Jesus lived, that was what they did. So the Shema, it was developed out of three different passages eventually from Deuteronomy. The first was... Uh, proclaims the oneness, Deuteronomy 4, 9, the oneness in the, uh, of God and calls Israel to love him and obey his commands. And then the second piece uh, speaks of the reward of the obedience, uh, reward to obedience and the, and the kind of the punishments for disobedience. And then the third piece talks about uh, remembering to keep all his commands. And so in the, the context, if we were to put it together in the way the Jews used to say it, it literally meant this, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our covenant-keeping Redeemer, the self-sufficient one is our God. He stands alone and uncontested in our lives. And you had to say that twice a day. Pretty cool. Let me say it again. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our covenant-keeping Redeemer, the self-sufficient one is our God, and He stands alone and uncontested. Now go out into your day. And the main purpose of this was to settle in their hearts and minds that there is one God who is sovereign and he's going to work in my life today. So when Jesus stood up to primarily a Jewish audience and he said, hey, God's kingdom has come, they go, cool, let's come together, let's go take something. Let's go invade the kingdom of God. God has shown up and his reign, his rule is going to be among us. What does he want us to do? His nearness implied that there was repentance. We're going to have to change some of the way we're acting because we haven't been acting according to the kingdom. So there was some repentance they understood. And they understood that if his kingdom shows up, it's going to require some obedience. You have to listen to him. The salvation would not draw them out of their lives, but would radically alter them and send them back into the, into the daily life changed. Now, John 18, Jesus picks this idea up. So when Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom, he's explaining to people, I'm going to show up, I'm going to radically alter you, and then we're going to go out and invade into your society. So John 18, Jesus is speaking to Pilate, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. Which is why Jesus had rebuked Peter, because he hacked the guy's ear off, and he fixed the ear and said, Peter, stop, come on now. I've got to go to Pilate in just a while and, and you're just messing up the whole story. Not so with you. I mean, this is how the world acts, Peter. This is not our kingdom, right? Jesus has to rebuke Peter because Peter's not acting in line with the kingdom. And then he says to Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. My kingdom is from another place. 
My kingdom does not originate on the earth. It is not sourced from the wisdom of men. My kingdom comes from another place. It's alien. Luke 17. Having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is. The kingdom is not going to be geographically specific, Jesus said. It's not going to come because you watch and watch and go, oh, there's the kingdom. He's going to say, no, no, my kingdom, the kingdom of God is within you. So when he said, repent because the kingdom, the king is going to show up, but you know where he's going to show up? Inside of you. So you're not going to go, where's the kingdom? He's going to go, look at my church. See, there is alien DNA that God said basically, or for who the science fiction movie buffs, you know, this is for you. God's going to take his alien DNA And he's going to put it in you, and it's going to work its way through your entire being. And you're still going to look like you, but everything inside of you is going to be being altered. Nothing's going to pop out of your chest, look, you know, but, (laughs) but, but this alien DNA, the kingdom of God from another place will be inside of you. And everything inside of you is going to start changing. And when, and when everything inside of you is changing and you get with another group of people and everything inside of them is changing and you come into agreement that then my kingdom will be established among you. This will be where the kingdom is expressing itself. Are you tracking? Yeah. <laughs> Psalm 20. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall. We rise up and stand firm. Some believe in political power. Some believe in the might of an army. Some believe in the wisdom of men, but we put our trust in the Lord our God. They will press and fall and we will rise and stand. This is the direction of what's going on. There is a movement happening on the earth right now if you could but just perceive it. Everybody who does not trust in the king and his kingdom is destined. They're on a travelator that's going to make them fall. And everybody who's pressed into the kingdom is on a travelator that's going to make them rise. This is going on whether you see it or not. But there are temporary lapses where some people who are not serving God seem to be prospering. And the Bible always has a very calm, conciliatory tone about that. It goes, just relax. It's fine. Consider their end. You see, the Bible always calls us to go, yeah, I know temporarily that, that jerk or that lady who's just really selfish, ambition and envious and fighting people and they seem to be prospering. He goes, just, just calm, just step back, look at which way this thing goes. Most often in Scripture, this idea of yeast or leaven is used as a symbol for evil. Either because of its leaven takes, takes root and changes the entire lump. And so the Jews, most of their feasts had unleavened bread. It was a sign that they, would, they had purified themselves, that they'd pushed back on evil, that they turned away from it, and they were coming to God with sincerity and purity of heart. So that's the, the, the general tenure in Scripture. But the notable exception is the fact that Jesus said the kingdom is like yeast. 
The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, depends whether you read Matthew or Mark, the kingdom is basically the same thing. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and she worked it through 60 pounds of dough. Now, I can just ask, 60 pounds of dough sounds like a lot of dough to me. I mean, how big is that 60 pounds of dough? She's working, it's not like she worked it through. She's working it through the dough. Okay. So let's talk about this idea that Jesus said the, there is, the kingdom is like a yeast that's going to hit on the inside of you and it's going to start its work. It's going to work its way through the entire dough of your life. It's going to impact your thinking. It's going to impact your attitudes. It's going to change your morals. It's going to change the way you believe. It's going to change the way you function with your finances. It's going to engage in your sexuality. It's going to improve the way you speak. It's going to impact every single part of your life. But there are some rival yeasts that Jesus said, watch out for these yeasts. Because there's some other DNA that would, would love to be introduced into your life that will help take spread. And we have to just be careful. So the first one Jesus warned about is the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Matthew 16. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they discussed this among themselves and said, is it because we didn't bring enough bread? And Jesus explains, he's a little irritated with them, goes, guys, I, come on now, have you seen me supernaturally provide? Do you really think I'm worried about bread? Come on, breathe, think. Verse 11, how is it that you don't understand that I was not talking about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The Pharisees were a religious group. They believed in the Torah. They were experts in the law. They believed also in the oral law, the ability given to Moses to interpret the law and in the prophets and the other writings. And uh, they believed that if you obeyed the law and if you obeyed what they were teaching, then you could live a holy life that you didn't have to be attached to the temple. And most of the modern rabbis came out of this line. The, the Pharisees were typically connected to the, to the average people. They were really close to the, the crowd. And they embraced a form of religion, however, that hindered other people coming to God because they positioned themselves as fully righteous and therefore able to police everybody else's morality. Do you know anybody like that? Their breed of religious adherence made people slaves to fear of judgment and reprisal. Jesus said, you, you yourselves won't enter the kingdom, but then you stop, you forbid other people from entering the kingdom. Because they, they took the moral high ground. They took the religious high ground. We are the righteous people of God. And if you're not doing it like we're doing it, then God is anti you. Obedience to their particular definition of the law was the ticket. That, and they claimed that they basically owned the favor of God. But when Jesus stood right in front of them, they resisted him and tried to entrap him and plotted to kill him. So I called them hypocrites as often as he could. But they had the best relationship with the, with the common folk. They were populists. And Jesus said that their kind of yeast was a kind of hypocrisy. They claimed to be right and therefore claimed that everybody else was wrong and they shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. They exercised control through spiritual judgment of others. A religious spirit. Now Jesus said, watch out for a religious spirit 
because it will rival the kingdom of God. It will try and take hold of you. It will try to be the yeast that gets in your heart and then spreads throughout your whole body. And when somebody has embraced that kind of yeast, you can see it all over their life, constantly pointing out where other people are doing wrong, constantly pointing to other churches, constantly picking out by name other members who are leading, going, oh, you see how wrong they are. It's a yeast that is not the yeast of the kingdom. Jesus said, watch out for the yeast of the Sadducees, which is self-righteous unbelief. Luke 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is uh, hypocrisy. Sadducees, sorry, as well. They had a, a real passion for the temple, the Sadducees. They controlled the high priest. They had, they had emerged because... During the Maccabean revolt, the previous high priest had been unfaithful, and so they, they established a new high priest, and they jealously guarded that, that kind of power role. Uh, they rejected the oral law. They stood only with a Pentecute. They didn't believe in the Talmud or the Mishnah or the Gomorrah. They said none of that is right. They didn't believe in death or, or resurrection. They didn't believe in the supernatural miracle. They were the upper ruling class. They were the elite they held out for position and they jealously guarded their role in society. They saw themselves basically as the superior people in the Jewish nation. They loved and appreciated the Hellenization of, they loved Greek culture and language. They were always plotting what is the best move for us. They're always working the best angles. Not necessarily people of conviction, but people of great intelligence who played the odds. Know anybody like that? What is the most expedient thing for us to retain governmental power? That was the Sadducee. It's a political spirit. The Pharisees were a religious spirit, but the Sadducees had a political spirit. And then we come to the yeast of Herod, which is control. Herod and the Herodians was a group of people in Jews who really loved Herod. Herod was proclaimed the king. He was part Jewish. Herod had created a lot of building projects. He was uh, wealthy. He was obviously backed by Rome, and so he had a lot of tax money. He built a lot of things. He was kind of half celebrated and half hated because he was very brutal. And uh, when Jesus began to preach the good news, uh, Herod and the Herodians began to plot alongside the Pharisees to kill him, usually the Pharisees and the Herodians, or Herod, had nothing to do with it. They weren't friends. They were in opposition to one another. But when it came to Jesus, because Jesus threatened both of them, he threatened both of their livelihoods. They came together to resist him. Mark 8, when the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them and got back in the boat and crossed to the other side. Be careful, Jesus said. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod, because they had joined together. They kept asking Jesus for a miraculous sign, ostensibly to prove that he was the Messiah, but they weren't very interested in change. They resolved in their hearts not to be moved by him. They were just looking for him to do something so they could find a mechanism that they could engage against him. And when Jesus is brought before Herod, Herod is now finally goes, oh, finally I've got Jesus, and he's 
pestering Jesus with questions. And Jesus doesn't answer any of Herod. He just remains quiet, just looks at him. That must have so ticked Herod off to a controlling person. If somebody wants to control every aspect of everything around him, Herod must have hated Jesus not answering him. Because he was known for his brutal acts towards anybody who was a detractor. If you didn't agree with Herod, he was brutal towards you. But he was charming and seductive to those who would obey and agree with him. Luke 23, when Herod saw Jesus greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. And he plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. Luke 13 says, at that time the the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, oh, you should leave this place and go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus' answer was, go tell that old fox. I'm going to preach today and I'll preach tomorrow and I'll do what I want on the third day. There's this great story in um, Jesus is walking out, he's from Bethany, he's going to Jerusalem, and he's on the way, and he's hungry, and he, and he curses the fig tree, and the disciples are amazed, and Jesus is there, but down the road, down the valley, from where Jesus is standing, down the valley, there was a mountain that was built by Herod, uh, and Herod had built it for a summer palace, there's a, there's a picture of it here, I'll show you, there's, well, there's six pictures of it here, if you could put those pictures up, he built this a palace, it was like a, a place for him, it was just a mountain, it was almost a kilometer high, and he just, he just on, on the top of this, you can see the ex- excavation, there was his palace, and he had he just built a city on top of a mountain. And there wasn't a mountain before. He just had a mountain built and then he put his city in the mountain. That was his, one of his palaces Herod had built. And Jesus is standing there and you look down the valley and there's a mountain. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Are you amazed at this? He says, if you have faith and don't doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain. He's talking about a specific mountain, not any mountain. He's saying, see that mountain? You can say to that mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea and it'll be done. Shocking to the Jews. You can take on Herod. You don't have to bow down. No. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in religious spirit. Some trust in a political spirit. Some trust in brutal control. Not so with you, Jesus said. Not so with you. This is not the way of the kingdom. The kingdom is a yeast of abundant life and liberty. Because when the kingdom hits on the inside of you, you just get life and you get free. And every other yeast hates the kingdom yeast. Wants to control you. Wants to grab you. Wants to rail against you. Don't you dare be free. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. The kingdom of God, man, it's going to take a little pressure. You're going to have to work. This alien DNA, which is like yeast being worked into you, is going to be working, and it's going to challenge existing ideas, and it's going to expand and ferment, and it's going to push out, uh, squeeze out old mindsets. It's going to change the way you think. It's going to change your values. It's going to move in, and if you will let it and cooperate with it, the kingdom will radically alter everything about you. Outside, you're going to look exactly the same, but inside, you're going to be entirely brand new, and that's the whole point of the kingdom. If you leave that yeast in for a little while, in fact, if you work it, 
hard. It's going to go throughout the whole dough, and that's the point. Our entire life, your entire life, is designed to be filled with the yeast of the kingdom so that when you begin to minister, when you begin to walk through life, your whole mindset is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when that's the case, you step into the same circumstances that you used to step into, but everything has been made new on the inside of you. So everything on the outside of you starts to manifest differently. And if you'll come into agreement with two or three or five or 12 or 20 other or 500 other believers in a meeting like this morning, when you'll come together among you, the kingdom is made manifest. God is still looking for the miracle of incarnation in this life. He's, God vested himself in his son, and the son was the exact image of the glory of God, Hebrew says, the exact representation of God's being, and Jesus wants that replicated. I in the Father, the Father in me, and I in you, may we be brought together so that when you go out, you manifest the king and his kingdom perfectly. That's the goal. And so Jesus said, where two or three of you will come together in my name, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom and you can loose whatever you want and you can bind whatever you want because when two or three of you come together, that's going to be the, the basic demonstration of the kingdom because all of you have this internal DNA and when you minister and when you relate to one another in that fashion, people will see an expression of the kingdom. Look at how they love one another. Look at how they care about one another. Look how they weep for one another. Look at how the burden shared. Look at how the joy explodes. Look at how they do life together. Look at the beauty of the kingdom. This is the kingdom. And it ought to be when we come together in community that everybody goes, see, that's the kingdom right there. There. What is God like? He's like that. Go hang out at that community group. That's the kingdom. <laughs> We were away on vacation, and we read some books. And the way we read books on vacation is Michelle reads the book, and then she gives me the synopsis at, in the evenings. <laughs> I do a lot of reading on vacations like that. One of the books she was reading was The Whole Brain Child by Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. And there was a part in there, and I thought, I, I said, man, that just, that just so speaks to me about our desire and our need for being in community. So it's a book about children's brains and how they develop, so here we go. I wanna read an excerpt to you. It says, mirror neurons may also explain why younger siblings are sometimes better at sports. Before they ever join their own team, their mirror neurons have fired each of 100 times because they've watched their older siblings hit, kick, and throw a ball. At the most complex level, mirror neurons help us understand the nature of culture and how our shared behaviors bind us together child to parent, friend to friend, and eventually spouse to spouse. Now let's take another step. Based on what we see and hear and smell and touch and taste, in the world around us, we can mirror not only the behavioral intentions of others, but also their emotional states. In other words, mirror neurons may allow us not only to imitate others' behaviors, but to actually resonate with their feelings. We sense not only what action is coming next, but we also the emotion that underlies their behavior. For this reason, we could also call these special neural cells sponge neurons in that we soak up like a sponge what we see in the behaviors, intentions, and emotions of someone else. We don't just mirror back to someone else, but we sponge in their internal states. 
Notice what happens when you're at a party with friends. If you approach a group that's laughing, you'll probably find yourself smiling or chuckling even before you've heard the joke. Or have you noticed that when you're nervous or stressed out, your kids will often be that way too? Scientists call this emotional contagion. The internal states of others, from joy and playfulness to sadness and fear, directly affect our own state of mind. We soak other people into our own inner world, and you can see then why neuroscientists call the brain a social organ. It's absolutely built for mindset. You are biologically equipped to be in relationship, to understand where other people are coming from, and to influence one another. As we've explained throughout our book, our brain is actually reshaped by our experiences. You want the kingdom to break out in you? It comes from an internal decision. Do it, Lord. But it also comes from engaging in community with other people in whom he's put his foreign DNA. Because when they've stepped in and said, do it in me, Lord, and you connect with them among us, among us, the kingdom is made manifest. Seeing other people's heart, seeing other people's compassion, watching other people love deeply from the heart, watching other people's generosity has an impact on us, and it should. You were designed, you were born to be in kingdom community. And it affects all of us. And that's what today's about with those cards on your chair. Get involved in a kingdom community. Join us in the community group, sign up. Go, yeah, I'm in. I want to make a difference. But I don't just want to be me. I want to do it together in harness with other people. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like yeast. That a woman took and worked it into 60 pounds of dough. The kingdom of God wants to ferment and boil and bubble and change everything inside of you. I dare you to let it. And then I dare you to let it out. Father, we give you honor for what you're doing inside of us. Do it, Lord. Bring forth your life, your freedom, your beauty, and make a change in this world through our lives and through our community.